I'd like to talk about the ascending zigzag path to increasingly refined consciousness. In the suttas, the Buddha regularly refers to the path of practice as a, a gradual training, in uh, which he enumerates in various forms. Sometimes in, in more simple formulas, uh, sometimes uh, um, uh, in full. Listing quite a lot of steps and details. But the general idea is that all of us start from a place of delusion, start from uh, being filled with raga, dosa, moha, these, uh, uh, these uh, imperfections, uh, impurities within our stream of consciousness. And, uh, and then gradually we have the ability within ourselves with a little assistance from the Buddha's guidance to purify that consciousness uh, to the point where we can realize the, the same level of enlightenment as the Buddha himself. <coughs> so if we start from a place where uh, fully immersed in the world, then um, we tend to be impressed with uh, the superficial aspects of the world, the things that glitter, uh, and uh, um, that, um, say, materialistic aspect of the world uh, is uh, there's something which uh, I think is emphasized a lot in modern society and uh, will often even creep into um, religion or spiritual endeavors. So usually the, the path is a path of gradual training and we'll start with something as simple as, as generosity. Uh, we start with generosity, uh, giving, a uh, sense of uh, uh, willingness to give up for the benefit of other people. Uh, already has a uh, tremendous um, purifying 
effect on consciousness. And the karmic result from that um, is, is uh, great. There's many, many stories of, of um, very impressive karmic results from uh, sometimes even small but very sincere acts of generosity and giving. Uh, so this is uh, uh, an important first step. But even with generosity, you see how sometimes it can creep into um, spiritual paths or, or religions. And uh, you see how uh, materialism can uh, distort it in a way which um, uh, a lot of the benefit is lost. And you see that... Uh, a lot of maybe in televangelists, but you also see it in, in Buddhism. There's one sect in Thailand which uh, has a bit of a bad reputation, but it's, it's very, very popular and, it, uh, um, and very, very wealthy because it emphasizes uh, giving money. And um, they have these kind of programs, for example, where you know, if you give a million baht, um, basically you're, you're guaranteed of a place in heaven. <laughs> which, which is really not very Buddhist. Purifying consciousness, then uh, keeping sila, you know, a, a real heartfelt dedication to sila is going to be very important. <clears throat> Spoken about this before, but you know, even something like uh, keeping the first precept uh, of not harming, not intentionally harming, already has a uh, a huge uh, effect on our consciousness, and uh, not to mention the people around us. Um, you know, this, uh, this question came up the other day when, uh, before the retreat started, we had um, some people come to visit us. We thought they were, we were expecting some gas and Jerry opens the door and a young teenage woman, you know, asks, do you think there'll ever be an end to world violence? and um, handed to some literature. It turns out that John's cousin had, had sent the Jehovah's Witnesses over here. <laughs> yeah, they come to his cabin, apparently, and he said, oh, look, you should really go over to that cabin. They'll really be interested. That would be good good pickings for you over there. <laughs> so there I am standing in my Buddhist robe and Jerry answers the door and uh, said, do you ever think there'll be a, an end to world violence? It's, it's, a, it's, it's a skillful opening line <laughs> trying, to, trying to get you engaged. But uh, then there was a moment there where Jerry was like, <laughs> didn't quite know how to respond. <laughs> and 
in the end he just said, look, I, thank you, I don't believe we're interested. <laughs> but, you know, if, if uh, everyone in the world kept the first precept, just one precept, if everyone kept that, then, you know, there would be an end to violence in the world. And it would be uh, very heaven-like, you know, even just that much would transform the world. <clears throat> so in terms of refining consciousness um, and uh, in practice, even if we're, even if we're diligent in our, our generosity and our sila, we're pretty good in keeping our sila and we try to make a regular effort into practice, still, uh, it's not going to be a smooth line that uh, gradually ascends. You know, it's just it's just the nature of the mind. You know, some days it'd be more peaceful and some days less, and so you end up with more of a, a zigzag line. But uh, you know, and sometimes it actually seems like you can feel like you're going backwards. But if we just keep putting our attention back into my practicing correctly and focusing on that then that, uh, uh, that will tend to take care of the results. You don't have to worry about the results so much. Whatever results there are will be fine, but, but uh, keep putting on effort in regularly, then uh, the, uh, the path will gradually ascend. Now, <clears throat> when we first start to have experiences of the mind becoming a bit more peaceful, then that's uh, a time where we really start to uh, experience the beginnings, seeds of the mind becoming more pure. And for many people, this uh, will take place in nature, you know, for a lot of people, you know, even if they they don't meditate at all, maybe they just go out, maybe sit by a stream, um, next to trees, listening to birds, and almost slip into a state of concentration, or you know, a, a state where, uh, of serenity uh, and solitude, which then maybe the first time that they've ever experienced an kind of inner quietude, an inner peace. And it can feel very profound. And uh, it's uh, not necessary that it, it has to come from, you know, actually practicing sitting meditation. But just when the mind goes into balance, when it finds the right balance, it will, uh, it will naturally uh, fall into a state of samadhi, because we all have that potential.
Um, I don't really feel like giving a Dhamma talk tonight, but that's okay. I'll keep going. <laughs> can't think of anything funny to say. <laughs> can't think of any profound... profound. <clears throat> How about questions? <laughs> you want to do more questions? Are there any in the bowl? There are some in the bowl. Hey, John. John, can you grab the questions bowl? Are other spiritual and religious paths directly or indirectly practicing vipassana slash satipatthana, which therefore is leading to nibbana? And how many different meditation and or spiritual practices, and which ones, are there that would lead to nibbana? When the Buddha was asked this, he he said, in any spiritual discipline where you'll find the Noble Eightfold Path, then you'll find people practicing for Nirvana. Uh, the potential is there. Uh, and, uh, and then he would clarify exactly what the Noble Eightfold Path is. So, other spiritual and religious paths, I wouldn't, not necessarily, are they practicing all aspects of the Noble Eightfold Path? I think then you, you just have to look. Um, is it leading to the uh, purification? You know, does it really eradicate um, the, uh, the um, all, even the subtle forms of of defilements from the stream of consciousness? <clears throat> it's a difficult question to answer and still be politically correct. Uh, but um, even with, I would say, even within Buddhism, you know, there are, there are some uh, teachings within Buddhism that probably aren't going to be working for uh, leading to an enlightenment. Um, and outside of Buddhist schools, and then um, there's, again, I think there's a lot of. Uh, different goals in spiritual practices and religious practices. Uh, and uh, I think some of them um, stop short of full enlightenment, yeah, but are still very exalted, yeah, far more you know, exalted than, than uh, you know, many Buddhist practitioners. So... Uh, in terms of the, the final goal of an, well, in terms of the f- full enlightenment, um, the only ones that I have 
met why of confidence are in have re- realized the stages of Buddhism uh, are in, in Buddhism. Is that clear? <laughs> okay. Well, let's see, Ajahn. I was told that there are there are gaze or space between thoughts. Oh, gaps. <laughs> there are gaps or space between thoughts. If we can show, if we can slow. show slow slow, if we can slow down and reduce the amount the amount using these thoughts. Hmm. Maybe we can look into it and as a have a glimpse of what emptiness or nirvana is all about. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, certainly if you uh, pay attention, place the attention not on the thoughts but the gaps between the thoughts, then what we put our attention on, what we pay attention to, will gradually increase, expand. And it's... Uh, it's, you're, you're not destined to always have a head full of thoughts. It's very possible um, that your mind becomes clear of thoughts. Right now my mind is clear of thoughts. <laughs> I should make this more of a Zen teaching. <laughs> There's the flower. So hold up, hold up the flower. <laughs> Let's take the canoe out or something. What color? <laughs> did you write this? I bet you did. Yeah. What color is George Washington's white horse? (laughs) (laughs) Is that a cone or something? (laughs) Yeah. It's too zen for me. (laughs) (laughs) It was you, wasn't it? Could you please talk about the difference between letting go of desires and repression? Uh, yeah. <coughs> repression is a subtle form of aversion. Uh, and it, it's like uh, often we, we don't want to look at something and we have a, a subtle aversion to dealing with it or maybe a strong aversion to, to looking at it. And that, that will hold it down. Right? That takes a lot of energy, though. It takes a lot of men- mental energy. It's quite exhausting. So people who are doing a lot of repressing will often um, not have a lot of energy, physical energy. Um, <clears throat> letting go is like 
when fully allowing things to arise come to the surface and fully acknowledging them, uh, which uh, takes a lot of acceptance. You have to like fully accept whatever's going to come up into consciousness, whether it's nice or neutral or sometimes nasty. So when, um, like, for example, there may be uh, 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 painful emotions or memories, maybe um, maybe unbecoming emotions. You know, we like to think of ourselves as nice people, but you know, anger is coming up. Then, uh, if for whatever reason we don't want to look at that, we we may not want to uh, admit that we have that much anger. And so we're kind of averse to it. We don't fully accept it, and that will kind of press it down. Or um, if something is just painful, and we, we kind of maybe have this thing, well, if it's painful, it's bad. I don't want to look at it. Uh, or think somehow we think you know, we're a fail, failure if we, we start to experience difficult emotions. And so there's uh, a tendency to want to push it down. But that aversion to hold it down obviously doesn't work very well, and it tends to leak out in other ways, and um, really it will just eventually pop back up again <clears throat> as soon as we, as soon as we don't, you know, as soon as we rele- release the pressure from holding it down, it'll tend to come back up. So letting go is like uh, fully allowing it to be there, fully acknowledging it, fully accept- accepting it. We don't have to identify with it. We don't have to say, this is my anger. But we should at least fully accept that, oh, this is anger. Or this is painful. Or this is grief. Or this is depression. And just fully, fully say, okay, this is it. And when that's the case, then it, it will tend to wear off its energy. You know, its karmic effect will tend to will tend to be spent and then um, and then it can really really drop away. And it's not so much that I mean that's what we call letting go, uh, but really it's just allowing something to, to come up, uh, have its karmic effect released, being there spacious enough, present enough for it and then it will go by itself. We don't have to force it to go away. (coughs) Although sometimes it comes back again. (laughs) But you have to keep doing that. You know, um, it will get weaker and weaker and and, um, easier and easier to, to be with that process. What inspires your Dhamma talk topics? This is a question from last night. (laughs) (laughs) But it was added on to. It says, please. (laughs) Because I didn't answer it last night. Well, tonight's Dhamma talk topic is easy. Nothing. (laughs) Absolutely nothing. Yes. Um, I have a question. So, 
um, in in meditation, we're trying to like fix our attention on on the object of meditation as best we can. But the you know with impermanence, the object is always changing; is never the same from moment to moment, and neither is your mind. And like the way they like meet up, and the perception is like always a different thing from moment to moment. So what like I don't exactly know what my question is. Like what's what's that about? Like we're trying to like fix something and keep this attention constant, but at the same time, it's like all these things going into it are changing. Mm-hmm. So uh, everything has both sides of, as you mentioned, the the constant change, but also has a certain continuity, and so. Uh, it depends on which type of meditation or which aspect of the meditation you want to focus on. Now, if you're in developing samadhi, uh, we tend to focus on the the, more, the continuity uh, between things, like the continuity of the breath, uh, the wholeness of the breath, or the continuity of, say, repeating a word over and over and over again. <clears throat> Whereas, uh, if you're focusing on the, if you're investigating the characteristics for insight, then you'd be focusing on how how each moment is passing away. For example, you know, as each moment is changing, uh, perceptions are changing, our attention is changing, the object is changing moment by moment. But you can. Um, for, for developing samadhi, you need to actually focus on the continuity of something, so that uh, um, otherwise the mind won't won't go deeper into it. So both are important, and uh, it's good to be clear on uh, which one you want to do at, at which time. And generally, well, I mean, generally they support each other. You know, at certain times you you can kind of look into um, look into more than you know, how things are. Look into the characteristics of something if it leads to letting go. Um, but if the mind is is going into stillness, then just you know allow that process to uh, to deepen. Thanks. Yeah, Jerry. When you say uh, stillness, uh, do you mean absence of thought? Uh, there are many different levels of it. Certainly, uh, when the mind becomes very peaceful, thoughts can cease completely. But even in uh, even when the mind is is centered, balanced, and still, you can still get kind of thoughts popping up here and there, uh, and that's very normal. So it's not necessarily an absence of thought per se, but um, the uh, it's like the the mind isn't shaken by it. The the, the basic mental energy is you know your mind you feel kind of solid, and then a thought may come in, but it doesn't shake that. It doesn't throw us off balance. We don't go chasing that thought. I was told that. Final thought and more coarse thought. What are the What are the finer ones? The finer thoughts? Yeah. Oh, that's when we think about art, <laughs> <laughs> poetry. 
<laughs> Classical music. Coarse thoughts. I don't even want to go there. <laughs> you know, there are some thoughts which are just very intense and grab our attention. But there are some thoughts, you know, we can be, let's say, the majority of our attention is on our breath. But we can still have kind of niggling thoughts in the background. And so, so we kind of know they're there, but we're not really paying attention to them. So the, the uh, majority of the attention then goes to the meditation object and the habitual thinking you know, gradually is kind of starved a bit because we're not paying attention to it. And it becomes weaker and weaker. thinking about what you said yesterday about metta and that being an unconditional kind of love. Do you think it's even possible for people to actually have that high level of unconditional love? Because it seems to me like, I, I just, like after you said that last night, I went through all of the people that I love and I just thought, well gosh, you know, I mean, there's there's always something that I'm getting from that, you know? and I mean, I practice metta a lot, you know, I um, am always, I always have the intention to send out, you know, loving wishes to people, but I guess maybe it comes with the, I mean, I guess the difference comes in that you consider someone to be special. You know, like if something really bad is happening to somebody that you love, you know, you want to wish metta for that person, and then you want to wish metta for the person that's causing the harm too, but it's different. It's like you'd rather focus on the person that you're friendly with. So, I don't know if we can talk more about that. It's a high standard, like I say. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, uh, it certainly seems to be possible. Like I was saying yesterday, it's um, good to be realistic, you know, even if we're not there yet, you know, or even if we fall short of uh, immeasurable loving kindness, it's okay, you know, we can keep doing our best (laughs) because it's such a high standard. Stick with it. <laughs> you can trade your children for other people's children. <laughs> <laughs> See if it makes any difference in your mind. Just tell them, I'm just checking myself. Just a little test of practice. We're going to be giving you away to the neighbors. <laughs> On a lighter side, and picking up from when you talked to Common Ground, um, you're saying there are some people that want to suffer. Okay, my question is, and it's a just a twist, but 
if they suffer, they get what they want, right? Mm. And if they don't get what they want, they suffer. Right. They never get happiness. <laughs> <laughs> Even if they get happiness, they, they're unhappy because they really want to suffer. Yeah. <laughs> but often the thing is people... Well, sometimes people know they want to suffer, but mm-hmm. often often they think they want to... They, uh, they're just afraid to change is, is more the thing, you know. Is instead of going to something which is uncertain, mm-hmm. you know, they can consciously or unconsciously choose to stay with something which is difficult or painful. <clears throat> so, again, you know, it may not be that they want to suffer, it's just that they're even more afraid of, you know, change might be even worse. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Brent. <laughs> Please expound your question. Is it more important, like for a monk who lives out in the jungle, instead of reacting to fight or flight, if like a tiger or a bear was going to just maul him? Is it better to have loving kindness? I think about it like being out in nature. Like you know, thoughts come like, oh, a wolf could just attack me. Like, is it should I react to fight or flight, or should I send it (laughs) loving kindness as it just rips? What what is the more noble path? Simile of the saw. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well. Um, as the tiger eats your feet, <laughs> you think, how wonderful that the tiger is not going to be hungry tonight. Hmm? As the tiger is eating your legs, you think, how wonderful the tiger will be uh, have its desire fulfilled tonight. There's no tigers around here, don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) And the bears aren't going to eat you. They're black bears. They're not grizzly bears. They just might scratch you if you have to. (laughs) Now, there are are high ideals, and there are... Um, kind of practical situations. <laughs> so, uh, there's a, uh, well, there's a, there's one uh, story of the, the Buddha where in previous life uh, he supposedly uh, fed himself to a starving mother tiger who had, had a cub, you know, uh, as a sense of offering his body so that uh, that so the tiger would not suffer um, there is also a story a, uh, a sutta called simile of the saw where uh, the Buddha is talking about uh, loving-kindness and to the extent uh, that one can take this practice 
And he said, uh, even if they were walking through the forest or walking through the city and a, and, uh, a, a, a gangster or a gang or, or you know, someone attacks us and starts to um, cut us up limb by limb, then those who would uh, show or experience any anger towards their attacker would not be a true disciple of the Buddha. So now that's uh, extremely high standard. I think in the uh, in the forest, if there's wild animals around, <coughs> you wouldn't need to give in to the fight side of it. Uh, in fact, that will generally make things worse. There are stories where uh, you know, a monk <coughs> group of monks were, were in the forest and you know the senior teacher was kind of sending his mind out and checking the uh, minds of the animals and he could see the tigers were a bit agitated and he checked the, the minds of the monks and one of the monks was um, kind of thinking in this way and uh, had thoughts of well the tiger attacks you know how am I going to fight it off <clears throat> and this was actually making the tigers agitated because they are very sensitive and they can pick up on it they could pick up on the fear and the aggression, and uh, that was making the situation worse. So I had to go and, you know, and talk to the monk and, and, you know, get him to change the way he was uh, thinking and start to, to spread loving kindness towards the tigers, or at least in a way that would um, calm himself down enough so that he wouldn't be afraid of it. <clears throat> um, if a wild animal actually attacks, then. Uh, usually you're, you're allowed to um, push the animal away and save your life. That's my recommendation, Brent. <laughs> if necessary, you're allowed to run. Go, go into flight with a, a sense of, may the wolves be happy, <laughs> get, get out. but I'm going to get out of here. Uh, that would be, uh, that would be acceptable. You might, if you were a forest monkey, you might lose face doing that. Going to lose a bit of street credit, <laughs> jungle credit. <clears throat> You're going to, you're supposed to, the thing is, you know, the wild animals don't attack. Uh, and if you're sitting there, calm, peaceful, and just working with your reactions, especially working with fear and watching it, being patient, keep breathing with it, then, uh, then uh, everything would be fine. But it's particularly, you know, if you would then be afraid and start to run, that would be potentially dangerous. Vipassana meditation, do you generally start out with kind of a problem or something that you're facing in your life or just kind of start out blank slate and see what comes up? Um, <clears throat> 
we all have enough problems that we don't actually need to kind of bring one up, and they will tend to come to the surface. So if you uh, if you simply start by being in the in the present, whether it's vipassana or you know whatever type of meditation you're doing, being the um, focusing on the breath, body sensation, being in the present moment, whatever needs to come up will come up on its own. Uh, we don't have to kind of go in there and dredge things up because we may not be ready for it yet. You know, when the heart, the heart's going to kind of unfold in its own natural way, in its own, with its own pace, and you can't really um, make it happen any quicker. And it's not necessarily very effective to try to bring up a problem and then figure it out, because the mind that can, that's trying to figure out an answer, is a deluded mind, <laughs> and the thought process doesn't have that much power. What really does have a lot of power is um, just, for example, staying with breathing. Uh, a lot of deeply held, um, especially pre-verbal traumas that we might have had uh, early on in life uh, can't, be, can't be solved at a verbal kind of a rational level. You kind of have to go uh, to a, a deeper level was just some, something like paying attention to your, your breathing uh, can access that. And it's very healing. It may not be immediately obvious what's, you know, why is that beneficial? Just watching your breath in and out and then, but just doing that, you see stuff starts to come up. Uh, or even if it doesn't come up, it can still have a very healing effect underneath. <clears throat> would be, um, you know, in, in the first, what, about six years of life, um, uh, a lot of that, uh, a lot of what happens during that time kind of gets so-called hardwired, right? You know, it doesn't become unchangeable, but it becomes, you know, kind of very, quite deeply embedded. <clears throat> and so, um, it doesn't really, even if, we, even if we know we have a certain trauma, idiosyncrasy, um, habit pattern that relates from that, uh, or dysfunctional something that relates from that, or... Uh, that's not enough to be able to undo it or change it. But something like uh, breathing, uh, awareness, just allowing things to arise and, and, and watching the seeds, etc., not associating, not identifying with things, that actually has the possibility of, of solving things at a, at a different level, a more basic level. about uh, skillful ways in dealing with pain, working with pain.
Is anyone here experiencing pain? (laughs) 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 Okay. Well, good. Otherwise, we wouldn't have insight into First Noble Truth. First thing to do with, you know, is just to um, recognize it when it's simply at the level of discomfort. You know, it's it's not intense yet. It's just kind of it's not comfortable anymore. Uh, but we still have enough mindfulness to you know, just be patient with it, and and just continue on with breathing. For example, if breathing is your main object to focus, then uh, just notice the body's starting to become a bit uncomfortable, but you can stay with the breathing, and that helps to develop patience because we need patience and in all aspects of life, and especially uh, developing the path. We need a lot of patience, so um, it's, it's a good opportunity for, for developing that, just, just being with it, even if it's unpleasant. However, if it starts getting a, a bit stronger, then you actually can take it as a meditation object. And, and uh, I think I was talking about this before, where you kind of have enough space around it, you can can go to it and just pay attention to it, attention to it as sensations, and then try to really figure out, you know, what discomfort is, and watch that tendency. Well, of how we relate to it. I mean, it's easy to relate to pain by, first of all, we label it as pain. We assume it's bad. It's unwanted. Maybe something's wrong. How do I get rid of it? How can I, right? You know, there's aversion to it, hating pain. And all of those types of responses to it are going to be very unhelpful. They don't make it better, they make it worse. So uh, take the opportunity to look at those responses and just see them as conditioned responses. They're just, okay, I've learned to respond to discomfort in this way. But I don't have to. When pain comes up, and kind of, can I just accept it as pain? In the same way, when uh, 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 a uh, painful emotion comes up, you know, uh, can we can we fully acknowledge it? It's a you know fully aware and fully acknowledge it without just saying, I don't want to look at this. You know, this is unpleasant. And the same thing with, with uh, physical discomfort. Can we fully acknowledge it? Say, yes, this is dukkha vedana. Uh, without having aversion. And so that's the key thing. You know, if, As soon as aversion starts to creep in, it's like, I hate, I don't like pain. Right? As soon as that starts to creep in, then we catch ourselves. And if we're not able to stay objective, then then it's probably better to change your posture yeah. at that stage. As long as we can remain objective and see it, okay, well, this is a physical sensation. I accept it just for what it is. I'm not going to judge it. I'm not going to try to get rid of it. I'm not going to be averse to it. Because as soon as we start doing that, then then uh, it's a bit like repressing, you know. Or, or if we're just trying to be tough, and grin and bear it, uh, then 
<coughs> doesn't really work. Actually, it can make the heart kind of hard, right? So, uh, if we lose the objectivity, then it's better just to um, you know, move the posture, uh, switch positions, and you know, start over again. So it's kind of a it's a balance between um, not not being too wimpy and not being too gung ho. You know, um, you gotta have to. Uh, you don't want to give up too easily with pain. Otherwise, we'll we're just always running away from pain. Uh, but we, uh, you know, it's not like we try to you know be really tough either. That doesn't work very well. Most of the meditation that that I've done has been the mindfulness, watching the breath. Um, I'm wondering if it would if it is beneficial to meditate on a teaching, and if so, how would you go about that? Uh, yeah, <clears throat> there are many many different types of meditations. Uh, generally, we tend to teach. Uh, people um, you know, a certain range of meditations, but there are many meditations which are actually based on um, skillful use of thought. So, for example, I mentioned um, earlier today, I was, I was talking about you could um, reflect on uh, one's past good karma, you know, the, all, all the times that we've been generous, all the times that we've been kind, uh, you can reflect on um, all the, the times where we've kept good sila and, and just reflect on that. And that will, uh, it's like using thought in a wholesome way, which will um, bring up a wholesome sense of self esteem. You can also take maybe, um, uh, you might want to <laughs> take a, a paragraph or, or, or a simple basic teaching of the Buddha, and then you kind of systematically go through it. Right. Um, I mean, you could you could uh, just go through the, the the four noble truths in your meditation and systematically contemplate you know, meaning of the four noble truths, or um, you take the th- a theme like um, like impermanence and uh, and start to contemplate. Uh, not not so much in an intellectual way, but you know, really contemplate uh, how deep and thorough that teaching goes. You know, you're looking at different aspects of our life and seeing how things are in a constant state of flux and change, or or just doing it with an open mind and say, is is impermanence true or not? Right? Uh, maybe it's not. Maybe it's not true. And that's you know that is. Uh, uh, also a, a good attitude to have, not having any foregone conclusions, and really contemplating, taking up a teaching of the Buddha and contemplating, is this true or not, and looking at different aspects of our external lives, but also then you know, our bodies, uh, moods, emotions, thoughts, consciousness. Uh, you could take uh, simple stanzas, hmm? They're in the suttas or from modern teachers. You know, maybe a paragraph or a stanza, and then just kind of contemplate that. You know, kind of bring it up, you know, memorize it, and you know, bring it up line by line. 
know, allow it to resonate. Especially when the mind is calm, then you bring up a line and 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 just kind of allow the meaning to sink in. Sutta study it can be very beneficial. Like if you're reading the suttas, uh, rather than reading them like a university student, uh, maybe you you read a page and then and then just sit and and you know meditate for a few minutes, and then maybe go out and read another page and then sit and meditate for a few minutes. And this way, it's um, it gives it a, a chance to really to sink in. And while you do that, then uh, sometimes the mind just might be quiet, you know, hearing, if there's, if certain teachings ring true, then often, you know, tend to make us feel quiet and peaceful. Um, But also, uh, if there is going to be thinking in the mind, if we're able to uh, rein that thinking in, and at least have it think in a more systematic or wholesome way. That can be a good meditation, a way of training the mind. Let's say, let's say, okay, well, I can't seem to stop the thinking in my mind, for example. So I'll, at least I'm going to think about dhamma. Now, at least I'm going to kind of systematically take up uh, dependent origination and then just go, okay, now, you know, this step leads to this step. You know, and this step leads to this step, and what's the meaning there? And this step leads to this step, and kind of go through a teaching systematically. Even that much is good for training concentration. Were there ever any forest monks who got killed by animals in the forest? Yes, lots. (laughs) Ones who died from malaria. The mosquitoes got them. What about like tigers and stuff? <laughs> yeah, uh let's see. I even in modern times I know in Sri Lanka there was a forest monk who uh was attacked by an elephant and uh the elephant came and, and knocked him over and, and crushed his hip bone and he was in a remote place alone and um it's a long time before he was able to get help, and to this day, you know, he, he walks with a, of a funny limp. <clears throat> He's a well-known uh, forest monk, so that's certainly possible. Um, I know of a, not a forest monk, but a foolish monk, <laughs> who was killed by an elephant. Um, in Khao Yai National Park in Thailand, which is one of the main parks, there was this um, elephant with a really bad temper and he would go into the areas where there were little stalls and things and just out of spite kind of knock them over and uh, do things which are really annoying. Um, He just said it was bad tempered. Um, 
some when the kids were playing soccer, he'd go and and um, just stand on the ball and squish it. <laughs> right, and so and and he kept getting more and more aggressive. Uh, and so there was this one monk who he wasn't really a forest monk, I don't think, but he he perceived himself to to have so much metta, so much loving kindness, so that, and he did. I think he he did have a lot. But so he, he decided he was going to go with uh, a friend, and they they went in to find this elephant, and. Uh, they finally found the elephant, and the elephant was very aggressive, and it was going to harm them. And he's just spreading metta, spreading metta, just like in the in the time of the Buddha. There's a story of Devadatta tried to kill the Buddha once by releasing a uh, a very violent elephant in the path of the Buddha, and, um, and and it came charging at the Buddha. But then the the Buddha just kind of used his metta, and and just and the elephant just kind of bowed down and became calm. Right? And uh, so this monk was going to try to do the same thing. This elephant's coming at him, and, and uh, he was spreading metta, and, and the elephant did kind of calm down, did calm down, and then uh, kind of went over, over to the elephant, and then, uh, but his problem, uh, his downfall was uh, egotism, because then he wanted to get a photo of it. <laughs> so his, his friend then took a flash photo and the flash just sent the elephant into a frenzy and it grabbed the monk, killed the monk and killed the other guy too but the camera survived <laughs> so the, they did get the photo in the end you know, if that was, I mean if that was really what he wanted was to get a photo of himself with the rogue elephant he got it so these things do happen, yes? Mm, tigers. Mm. Generally, like in the old days, you know, like maybe 80 years ago or, or more, 50 years ago or more in Thailand, there were whole areas where often the, the tigers were considered quite fierce and you know, if they were very aggressive in those areas, then um, generally the teachers would say, well, maybe stay clear of that area. The tigers are <coughs> particularly aggressive. Um, but there were, you know, some some of the famous monks were quite fearless and they wanted to kind of challenge themselves. So they'd go into those areas in particular. And um, I remember one, Ajahn, Ajahn Rian, who uh, I knew, spent some time with, I asked him, once uh, about tigers and uh, he said yeah once he was really sick and a tiger was uh, came near and um, and he wasn't afraid and uh, uh, instead of uh, what well, instead of kind of running away from the tiger he started crawling towards the tiger uh, and the, t- <laughs> the tiger was going away and the monk was kind of going after the tiger and uh, so he survived. <laughs> there was an uh, st- old story of one monk who 
Um, let's see here. He went um, bathing in a pond, which uh, there are a lot of you know, dangerous alligators in Thailand. And as he was going into this pond, he was up to waist high, <coughs> so a local villager came out and said, Ajahn, Ajahn, don't, you know, kind of screaming, don't go in that pond. But it was too late. The, um, he could see ahead of him, there was this kind of, the eyes come up and the bubbles coming up with this alligator kind of swimming towards him full speed. And uh, and he he just went into his meditation of Bhutto, Bhutto, Bhutto. And then uh, he could feel the, the alligator's nose touching his belly. But for some reason, he couldn't open his mouth. The alligator couldn't open his mouth. And so he just stayed with his meditation, Bhutong, 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 or maybe Arahang, Arahang. And, uh, and then slowly walked out. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> uh, one's meditation is really the only thing that can protect you in situations like that. Sila will protect you a lot if you have good sila. Uh, that has a protective value. Uh, you know, just like the, the good karma around having pure sila will tend to um, deflect on, uh, you know, a certain amount of karma will be deflected if you keep good sila. If you have good samadhi, that will deflect a lot away. Yeah? Um, animals are very sensitive. Uh, they can sense if someone is aggressive. You know, so hunters are in far more danger than forest monks. You know, hunters, are, you know, the animals respond to the hunter's aggression and uh, will attack hunters uh, far more regularly. But if, you know, if monks just there actually being peaceful uh, and, and even, you know, you can even talk to the, the animals in some way. You talk to them, uh, you know, silently say, explain to them, you know, what you're doing there and I often animals are irritated if you go into their hunting area. It's kind of they're territorial, you know. And suddenly you're in their hunting area. You can be um, scaring where the deer, you know, that they need to to live on, and then they get irritated. So um, if you go into a place like that, then it's good just to say, <clears throat> um, you know, big. Often the uh, the forest monks would speak in a way like they called the animals big brother. Say so, uh, they. Big brother, I must apologize for coming into your area. Please accept, you know, the, this inconvenience. I'm here uh, um, with no ill intent. I'm here only to practice the Dhamma. Uh, I wish you to be peaceful. Uh, I want you to, to be happy in your hunting. And, and um, please allow me just to sit here peacefully and practice my Dhamma and live here quietly. And thinking that, you know, very clearly, uh, an- larger animals are often able to pick up on that. Uh, animals in the jungle are very sensitive. Uh, they have to be to survive. And they can often pick up on that intention. They might n- may not understand the words exactly, but they'll pick up on the intention. Elephants, however, uh, they can actually understand language. If they've grown up around human beings, they can understand basic language much more than a dog, for example. 
so you could you know you can say basic things to an elephant and it will understand you know basic conversations so there's stories like that how sometimes elephants were kind of uh, blocking a, a trail there's one one time where a group of monks were uh, going along kind of a cliff face or it was a narrow trail and there was an elephant coming the other way and what were we going to do? And there was one monk, Ajahn Kao, who just had a connection with elephants. He was just able to communicate with them in a, in a way that was uncanny. Um, so as they came across this elephant, is it, get cow up here, quick! <laughs> get cow in front. So they put, get Ajahn Kao in front and, you know, again, you know, kind of explain to the elephant um, the situation and, uh, you know, said, please, you know, big, big brother, you know, uh, you know, we're just small, innocent monks compared to your mighty size. Would you please allow us to pass on this path without harming us? We mean you no harm, etc. You know, speaking very politely and respectfully. And then, uh, um, in that case, for example, in that case, the uh, the elephant just stood still and kind of leaned up against the, you know, to one side so that the Monks could kind of walk right next to it, you know, past. <clears throat> so yeah, these these stories, uh, you know, you hear a lot about them in the biographies of the monks from Ajahn Chah's generation and and before. Yeah. These days in Thailand, there's just <clears throat> not much, not many wild animals left compared to the old days. Got to go to the tiger zoo and have some sleepy tiger <laughs> put its head in your lap <laughs> and take a photo. <laughs> Not quite the same. Yeah. Different, different Buddhist tradition. When I was in China, I went into a lot of Buddhist temples. Most of them featured giant golden Buddha, but off to the side. There's a lot of deities, some very fierce looking and some not so fierce. And also, I forget her name in Chinese, but uh, a goddess of mercy. Kuan Yin. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's... that's um, can you explain a little bit? I mean, I, I'm something we just don't talk a lot about, the, you know, those sub-deities or... I mean, just out of curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, in the... What, what we know is the oldest teachings of the Buddha, uh, there's, n- there's like none of that, really. There's an acknowledgement of different levels of, realm, different realms of, of higher deities, you know, more refined consciousness. Um, but there's no kind of Buddhist pantheon at all. Even, even the Buddha, you know, for the first few hundred years, was not depicted in form at all. It was depicted maybe just as a, as a wheel, that, uh, the wheel of the Dhamma, or a footprint, or a Bodhi tree, or an empty throne uh, where he would sit, but he was not depicted at all, uh, certainly was not deified in any way. <clears throat> uh, it's mainly with the arising of, uh, first of all, in, in Mahayana, or developing in India, but then especially when it went to 
uh, places like China, for example, that uh, whole uh, partially due to new teachings and uh, um, partially due to incorporation of local beliefs and what local people wanted as well. Uh, just practicing straight samadhi and, and vipassana for a lot of people uh, wasn't really what they wanted. What they wanted was to to uh, bow down to a deity and to to worship a deity and to try to get something from a deity. <laughs> and so, uh, in response to that, then they would try to channel that in a wholesome way. And as part of also um, as part of um, the general. Uh, Mahayana philosophies, uh, more emphasis was placed on uh, deities uh, or bodhisattvas who would be there, who, who exist for the purpose of, of helping people in samsara. And, uh, you know, being very pure and well-intentioned beings. And so that having, uh, representing them um, could be a way of uh, one reminding people, you know, that they could do the same, but also as a, just a, a way of inspiring people. A lot of the fierce ones uh, in the Chinese tradition were are designed as uh, protectors. It may not be Buddhist deities per se, but like um, um, protectors of the temple, and so outside the temple and. Often in, in Chinese and Japanese, you'll find you know fierce warrior-like uh, yaka demon types, and uh, that was considered uh, a way of scaring away any unwholesome spirits from entering the temple grounds. But we don't do that. We accept the, even the even the nasty spirits, and and um, and then it's opportunity for all of us to extend loving kindness to them. But I know it gets it's a, it does get complicated, um, and uh, especially as the centuries roll on, then things tend to new things get added, and they don't want to throw away the old just in case it's really important. So it kind of get more. The pantheon gets bigger, bigger and bigger. The shrines get huge, um, and if you don't know the history, you know people just start stop to to understand after a while. You know, they, they're just born into a culture and they go to the temple and it's just got all this stuff everywhere. And it's like, wow, just light some incense. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's, and don't try to figure it out. But there is, you know, there is history behind all of the explanations. Uh, some of it, you know, if you understand, if you understand uh, statues and symbolism, 
you know, you can make it into something meaningful. Right? Even the fierce deities, you can you, you know, see those as aspects of uh, human consciousness, etc., that you can work with. Now, especially in the Tibetan tradition, when Buddhism went there, it already had, a, had uh, evolved or transformed quite a bit in India. Uh, and by the time it went to Tibet and then um, mixed with the local Bon tradition, it kind of took on a whole new pantheon, which gave it a unique <coughs> flavor. And a lot of the old gods, demons, etc., in that pantheon were kind of reinterpreted in Buddhist terms. And rather than denying it, you just kind of say, yeah, we accept it too, and then, but just uh, redefining it and, and incorporating it into what is now known as Tibetan Buddhism. Do you have um, recommendations on how to change unskillful habits? How to change unskillful habits? Just grin and bear it, repress it. <laughs> um, every time an unskillful habit arises, if we can catch it, then just find some way of not following it. And it doesn't have to necessarily be, I mean, if, it, if our mindfulness is very strong, let's say an unskillful habit arises, and just being aware of it is enough to kind of, it will dissolve. But some of our habits are very deeply ingrained. Uh, and, and even if we're aware of it, it doesn't seem to go away. It kind of sticks around, or, or it's like sometimes we just can't help ourselves, and we still respond, even though we know, even though we said, "I'm not going to do that," <laughs> still find ourselves, you know, falling into an unskillful habit. So then, it can be useful to find other ways um, to somehow just stop the conditioned reaction, something to stop us. Um, it may be, you know. You know, put a string on your wrist or something like that. The, the, there's a reminder, you know, for those times. Or you, uh, um, just like, force you in a certain situation where you're about to react, you just abs- just kind of leave the situation, you know, and, and say, okay, well, it's better not to say anything. Come back when I'm in a better state of mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, some way to break the habit, yeah, uh, and then the mind will kind of <coughs> relearn. You know, it's never it's never impossible to, to to break a habit. Do you have a specific specific? No, then <coughs> then just find something to stop you from. Uh, following through with the same pattern. Yeah. Mm. Does Ajahn Chah sleep? Does Ajahn Chah sleep? Mm. Ajahn Chah does not sleep at all. Just <laughs> <laughs> curious. Mm. He's been dead for 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
he's sitting there. Or he sleeps very deeply. What do you mean? When he was alive? Yes. Um, he meditated at while he was sleeping he, or was just laying down? He didn't need as much sleep as other people because he had this ability to just go into meditation, very deep samadhi, get a lot of energy, and you come out refreshed. Uh, so uh, he had a tremendous reserve of energy in that way. Uh, it was apparently quite difficult to keep up with him. <laughs> for, those of, uh, for those people who were living with him. Uh, because they didn't have the same ability or same uh, reserves. Yeah. But yeah, he would certainly sleep, just just not as much. Yeah. I was curious. I mean, if we go to bed and sleep, can we able to? If you know a dreaming. Can we able to kind of wake up that this is a dream? Is that possible? Yeah, it's certainly possible. Um, How much? Having mindfulness while dreaming is even a bit more difficult than having mindfulness while awake. So usually we try to, you know, if we're getting really mindful while we're awake, then we can try to extend it into the sleep state. Uh, One way you can do that is as you're going to sleep, uh, just consciously, you know, try to be aware of, of the last moment, and try to remember the last moment that you can of, of consciousness before you slip off into sleep. And uh, before going to sleep, you can make a determination, you know, that when you're dreaming, that you, you want to be able to be aware, uh, know that you're dreaming, you know? conscious dreaming. Certainly, this is possible. Some people find it easier than others. Uh, it's um, uh, you can experiment. Uh, there's there's ways that you can just be mindful, like very mindful, through the whole sleep process. Almost so mindful, it's almost like you're awake, but you're actually sleeping. Or it's possible just to uh, not have any dreams at all. You have enough control over the mind, so the mind doesn't go into any dreaming. And so then it's very uh, peaceful. Because dreaming is tiring, too. Tiring for the mind. So uh, you're just having periods of a whole night of absolutely no dreams whatsoever. Uh, Get a very solid sleep. But, um, But it's more useful to be aware. You know, if you if you can develop that quality of being aware, even when you're uh, dreaming, then uh, that assists in well, when we wake up. When we wake up, it's like mindfulness. You know, uh, we haven't been neglecting mindfulness. You know, already there's some momentum for the new day. Now, John, what was your field of study when you were in college? You say, well, Officially, or <laughs> which one ever took you the farthest? <laughs> I got a degree in comparative religion. Mainly, I was studying studying Buddhism, uh, Eastern religion. Okay. 
going back to the monk and alligator, what was that that he was repeating? <laughs> Could you elaborate on that a little bit? What was, what was the what? What he was repeating? As oh, um, I think his meditation object was arahang, and just repeating that like a, a mantra, you know, whether... He was a, he was on Tudong, so he was wandering a lot. And wherever he'd walk, he'd just keep repeating this word, Arahang, Arahang, which means um, like an Arahant, fully enlightened. Yeah? Can you explain how foods are determined on the eighth precept? Aja and Jumian allowed um, ice cream and dark chocolate. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know, like Galenka, I think the new students can have milk in their tea, and old students can't. Ooh. <laughs> you know, so, and you, you call it medicinal, so how are foods determined to be okay. <laughs> Um Well, we, we follow the standard in the Buddhist monastic code. And and that's it's pretty detailed, but it's from ancient India, so there are there is some room for how things are interpreted. So there, it's clear that there are some things which um, were considered uh, medicinal or just like tonics, like an energy give you a bit of energy in the afternoon. For example, honey, uh, honey is actually medicinal. You know, real real honey is medicinal, and it was something you could take just to give you a bit of energy in the afternoon if you're feeling uh, low on energy. Um, uh, sugar forms of, of sugar, like natural uh, occurring forms of sugar, uh, were included in that. Um, so those things are allowed, like sweet drinks or um, anything which is basically sugar. You know, if you want it, that's allowable. Uh, there were. Uh, As well, milk definitely seems to be classified as a food, uh, and uh, so. However, in Thailand, the the traditions which I'm very strict will allow milk in the afternoon, and so then if you allow milk and sugar, and make it cold, say <laughs> so, well. That's just cold milk and sugar, and uh, so ice cream becomes allowable. <laughs> you follow the logic? <laughs> but the thing is, you know, often the logic is not determined by wisdom so much as defilement. <laughs> you have to be very careful in those situations. Now, so, now we've got milk classified as a food, but cheese allowable as a tonic. How does that happen? <laughs> there was a, a substance, a medicinal substance in the time of the Buddha called Nawanitan, which uh, is, the process is de- described what it is, and it's somewhat like cheese and somewhat like butter, and could be either. And so either butter is allowable or, or, or cheese is allowable. Uh, and so we've kind of come to the kind of group decision. Let's say, okay, well, we'll, we'll call it cheese, make cheese allowable in the afternoon. Mm. Uh, but again, it 
it breaks not only the spirit of the rule, but it actually breaks the rule if you start using those things as a meal. If you start using them, not just for a bit of energy, but like a, a, a small evening meal, then that's that that uh, it's not what it's there for. Yeah, and so that shouldn't be done. Uh, there are like in the time of the Buddha, small. Um, what do they call it in English? In Thai, they call makam palm, small, uh, tart, green berries. I actually saw some in in the Portland area, uh, but they um, they're allowable because they were considered um, uh, very good for uh, as a digestion aid. Uh, what's that? Come, no, it's uh, smaller than that in green. Gooseberries? Gooseberries? Gooseberries. Could be. Yeah. And it's got a large seed. I mean, they're not all that delicious, really. But, you know, if you don't have anything else to go for, <laughs> you know, if you don't have any ice cream, you go for the gooseberries. <laughs> um, especially in Thailand, <laughs> where, you know, you don't, often you don't get a, a lot of time to eat the meal, so you know whatever is available in the afternoon, you know, uh, can appreciate the sustenance. So that's how things are, are determined. Uh, is what's allowable in the afternoon? Um, you know, we try to go back to the ancient text, but there's certain gray area in how it's interpreted. Well, it's about time to end. So we uh, chant the Metta Sutta and Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.